time to, to turn the page and the chapter of life here and uh, move away from the, the gym and fitness scene into more of the, the, the ranching uh, bison aspect that he just kind of always dreamt of. It was almost more of like a retirement type thing that he was uh, looking or the, the fun stage of life, right? And little did he know what he was signing up for at that point. That that was just the beginning of of a pretty wild ride for the last almost thirty years now. Wow! So, so he was in like the fitness industry before he trans transitioned into uh, farming. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that was my uh, both my mom and my dad were in the the fitness. My mom was more on the nutritional side. Uh, she graduated with a degree in dietetics and moved into the health aspect from a dietary standpoint. And my dad was really passionate about those things, of course, because he was trying to perform at a, at a pretty high level, uh, compete at a pretty high level against um, national level athletes and powerlifting. So that was kind of his scene. Um, owned a few gyms at the time and was competing, training and competing himself. And then also coaching and training other athletes uh, simultaneously. And then moved on to more, um, coaching and, and judging uh, a lot of the bodybuilding aspect and professional athletes. Then once he kind of quit, uh, hung up the, the, uh, competition side himself. So, and then from there, that was kind of the phasing into, uh, bison. But what's really interesting, I think that kind of comes full circle because a lot of people are like, how in the heck did you get into bison? Um, cause it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense, you know, to go from a gym to a ranch, but really, I think it I think it makes perfect sense because ultimately what what was the light bulb moment for them what took bison ranching from a retirement hobby if you will to a full flow, a full full fledged business like North Star is today um, was the light bulb of the nutritional element that bison are and what everything that they you know, all the college years and all the training and all the fitness and just living in that space for so long, they were very att- attuned to what the body needed and what was missing in the marketplace. And, and bison just fit both of those like a glove. And uh, it was better than chicken, but it ate like chicken, if that makes sense from a, from a dietary standpoint. So it fit the, it was red meat chicken, essentially, <laughs> that, that everybody was missing uh, because red meat in those times was considered bad. You know, it was a, it had negative connotations. Um, so that was a lot of the trans fats negativity era and um, blaming a lot of things on fat as, as the reason why us as Americans were, were getting fatter as a society. And This podcast episode is brought to you by Signature Touch. Signature Touch is veteran owned and operated and it was started by my wife and myself with a mission to provide the highest quality all natural skincare products made from ethically sourced ingredients. We have body butters, lip balms, and deodorants. And the best part is you could use it on yourself and they're safe for everyone in the family, including your children. My wife's favorite body butter is Bernilla. It's made with bergamot and vanilla botanical extract. People say it smells like key lime pie. My favorite is Lavincense. It's made with lavender essential oil and frankincense. It makes your skin feel so nourished, but it's also good on bug bites and rashes. Check us out today. The website is OurSignatureTouch.com. Use code JLA to receive 10% off your first purchase. The website, it's OurSignatureTouch.com.
So that's amazing. Anyway, dude. no, that's, yeah, it's kind of the, the journey, I guess. No, that's cool. So yes. y'all, your family had no history prior to that in, in farming or agriculture. So they kind of just took the plunge and learned it all, um, while doing it, I guess it sounds like, huh? They did. Yeah, they did. And, uh, actually both of them, my dad grew up on just a, a traditional small dairy farm here in, in Wisconsin. What he didn't like was the price taking mentality that he was basically had one buyer and that buyer dictated his life. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't an adult or he was an adult. <laughs> he was, uh, going to school and, and through high school, his, his dad was pretty non-existent, um, on the farm. Um, and so he took the shoulder of the burden on of a lot of chores before school and after school and trying to fit in sports and academics um, in the mix there, but saw that basically he was, he was, he loved the work, but was, there was no future in setting his own prices and, and getting, you know, having a, basically being a, a small business owner, you own, you had all the responsibility of the farm, but no opportunity to, to, um, to maximize your efforts. And so that was what turned him off from, from that aspect. And my mom came from kind of the same background, but confinement hog operations in Southern Minnesota is what she grew up on. And uh, so they're both very familiar with agriculture. They were gone um, from agriculture. When they left home, they said, no, this is not for us. You know, we're, we're moving on uh, bigger and better things in life. And uh, they, they didn't want to, they didn't have any intention of going back to, um, either of those lifestyles, I guess, but it was, it wasn't so much the farming or the, the agriculture lifestyle that had left a, a bad taste in their mouth. It was the way th things were, were done essentially economically. Um, and also some of the raising aspects just didn't sit right with them. So they did have agriculture backgrounds, but, um, and swore that they would never go back, but this is entirely different from that. But they, they were gone. One of, one of my dad's uh, mentors in the early years of getting into bison um, told him, you know, forget everything you know. And my dad said, well, good. You know, it's been just long enough that I pretty much have. So, because <laughs> it's just so, it's so different, you know, the way that we raise animals now and um, the way that they grew up and the way that's more the, the traditional conventional agricultural methods when it comes to, uh, livestock is it, it's night and day different you know mm -hmm. the the paradigm shift is really drastic and a lot of people who have grown up in agriculture have the hardest time transitioning over to like a regenerative type model because it's so different it's just completely opposite of everything that you're that gets pounded into you you know by um, big ag so yeah that's got to be an awesome life growing up on the ranch though. Right. For you. I mean, I can imagine yeah. waking up with bison, you know, kind of this fairy tale lifestyle, but I almost kind of think like, like for me, like, uh, when I was growing up working with my dad, my dad had his own business and I freaking hated it. He did HVAC work. And, um, okay. looking back at that, I was like, man, I should have stayed in that shit. I, I should have took over the business, you know, but hindsight's yeah. 2020, right? So was it kind of the same for you? Did you like get to a point where you kind of despise living on the ranch, messing with the animals on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say that I ever, when I turned 18, I actually, we bought our first processing plant. Um, and so then I moved into that element because if you look around the family, we're a family business. 
looked around the family and my, my sister was super passionate about the animal side as I was too. Um, but I kind of had some of my skill set, I guess, is a little bit more in the, the customer um, facing aspect. My mom was, was heavily in the marketing side and sales side. And uh, so I just moved into basically just needed a job, you know, graduated high school and said, well, you know, here we go. And started at uh, 7.40 an hour, I think, doing cleanup uh, <laughs> at the processing facility. And it was uh, it was very much a dirty job. Um, but it was kind of what I knew. And it was a good opportunity for me to get, you know, into the, the workforce, if you will. But I didn't really have a, you know, a, a trajectory. I just knew that I enjoyed a lot of the aspects of the business and I could see my connection, I guess, what, what really motivates even me today. I still love, my heart is, is on the land with the animals. Um, and, but really the marketing aspect gets me so excited because I know what people need. Um, I know what is, what it does for me. I know a lot of people, everybody needs product like this, and so to be able to bring that message to them and represent what is going on on the land and then recognize that every consumer that is purchasing product just further supports what is going on in the land. And there's, there's the only way that that can happen is if people buy the product. And so that's what really fuels me and makes me really excited is um, the ability to serve people with a product that is unlike most anything else on the planet. but then it affects, you know, the land and the animals exponentially beyond me going out and hauling a few bales out to feed some animals. Um, that's almost more self selfish work for me <laughs> that I, that I would enjoy that kind of work. So I still love that aspect. Um, and then I moved, like I said, I moved into the processing side of things early on and, and have worked all aspects of the business and, and much more on the, um, sales and marketing side now, kind of the leading the charge here. So, um, but yeah, to go back to your, your initial question about five years ago, I guess we, my wife and I up and moved to New Mexico and weren't really sure that this is what I wanted to do. Um, I love hunting. I love the West. I love all the aspects of, you know, bison ranching and, and living on the land and wild places. But you, the, the family business aspect takes a toll for sure. That is undoubted. Um, and, but yeah, you just, you don't really know, I think growing up and taking a lot of things for granted, you know, in those moments that you don't see from the inside as readily. And so moving away and, and I was still uh, full-time working remotely in the business and it didn't take me, but a month or two, you know, of being out of pocket, if you will, or not right on site that I was like, man. I, I do truly love that. That is, that is my passion essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, through, through that time though, I was still flying back home and doing all the meetings and, and still very much involved in, in growing the brand and, um, and reaching more consumers. But yeah, I, I definitely had those feelings. I think it's healthy to go through that season too, you know, to really give yourself a gut check, you know, kind of, uh, cut the ties essentially and say you do have the opportunity to do whatever you want in life and then what you choose make sure that you love it yeah. and and whether that is the family business or not i think there's a lot that is 
taken for granted though in those growing up years in an HVAC business or whatever that you just see the what do you want to say the the stuff that isn't pleasant or exciting or beautiful or very sexy about yeah. you know running your own business it's a grind there's a lot of stuff that's not glamorous that as the owner you have to do and and uh but there's um in our in our line of work we're just passionate about the ultimate goal and so you kind of take your lumps along the way and recognize that it's not all perfect but um at, at the end of the day you're you're really proud of what you do when you lay your head down on the pillow at night so yeah. at north star has it always been everything is handled in-house because you said you y'all have y'all's own processing facility has, has it always been that way and y'all always kind of manage it everything from uh, beginning to end yeah so we we purchased like i said when i turned 18 in 2005 um we purchased our first facility and owned it outright but prior to that ever since we harvested our first animal we were involved heavily involved in the process we didn't own the we didn't own the animal but i I look back or I think back and now owning a processing facility and, and doing some customs um, harvesting and, and cutting for local farmers and things like that. That's one of the services we, we offer to our local community is uh, to be able to harvest and, and cut and package and present a, a really um, beautiful product, I guess, to their consumers. But growing up, we spent a lot of time, we were heavily involved in harvest in the on um, on the the slaughter floor of harvesting all the different organs and skinning and and right down to it if we got a big order we'd come in and help on the the cutting floor and and do what it took you know to be able to get that product out the door uh in a way that we were really proud of it so but like i say on on the owning side now if we had a farmer that showed up that said hey i want to be you know i'm going to stand on the, the slaughter floor and i'm going to help you skin and i want to harvest this organ and that organ and and uh and then I'm going to come back on Tuesday and we're going to, I'm going to help you grind or cut some steaks or do, you know, like that blows my mind, but that's what we did. I, and growing up, you know, I spent a lot of time on, so by the time, I guess we, we had eight years of experience before we even bought our first processing facility because we were so heavily involved. So I would say, yes, we did. We have been from the start, you know, from the jump, it was all in hmm. and, um, that was just a, out of a desire and a passion, I think, for serving the customer and getting them what they thought they were buying from everybody else that we could see being in the facility that they weren't, that weren't, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't standard practice, you know, what our expectations were and what our community, what our customers were communicating to us. So to turn around and take that message into the processing side of things, we had to take things into our own hands, essentially, and, uh, and make it happen. So with that standard though you can't subject yourself to anyone else and so that's what ultimately we didn't my dad didn't have a dream whatsoever of owning a processing facility but it's become a necessary part of serving our our consumer and and maintaining the integrity of how the animal is raised you can lose a lot of value through the processing uh, uh, aspect if if it's not well managed and and cared for all through that process as well so um 
yeah, we're pretty passionate about it now and, and consider ourselves um, professionals in that realm also. It's been a rough learning curve and it's not it's not an easy industry to be in because um, yeah, there's just, you know, meat in general is just people assume that it, you know, that it's, that it just shows up in a can or something. I don't know. There's just this <laughs> disconnect, you know, that yeah. it's just like, it's, it's produced or manufactured or something like that. And so the, the art of meat crafting is, is dying. And so it's hard to get, find people that are really passionate about cutting meat because it's just like this, this lost yeah. thought or lost art, you know? So that's, that's a challenging aspect, but, but yeah, we're, uh, we're all in on all aspects, you know, to make sure that, that, um, what we provide to the consumer is is everything that we want to be consuming ourselves. How did y'all fare during COVID since y'all had y'all's own processing facility? Did that impact y'all whatsoever? It did. Yeah. So over the COVID was crazy. So we were living in Northern New Mexico at the time, like I said, when we, um, when I was living and working remote um, and literally the orders just COVID hit like, whatever it was we were actually out and my wife and I and our, our kids were out in the, in uh, around the Grand Canyon in Arizona. I think Flagstaff, we were at a, at a hotel out there and it was the weirdest thing. It was basically right. COVID hit, you know, like when we were leaving the house and by the time we got to our hotel, everything was a ghost town. And it was just like this weird alternate reality that you're living in, you know, like there was no room service. There was nobody in the hotel. Like, parking lots are empty like there's nobody on the roads it's like this apocalypse experience um and but the orders just went you know people were texting and, and calling me like hey uh the printer's burning up you know like <laughs> it's getting crazy and by the end of it we were only there for three days but when we were driving home from flagstaff to our home in northern new mexico it became pretty obvious that we were getting overwhelmed and so i literally that, that night i packed my bags and and drove straight through 18 hours home to, to Wisconsin to start, you know, packing orders and, and wow. help. Uh, so it was all hands on deck. You know, everybody shows up in that kind of a way to, to pull it off. But yeah, thank the Lord that we didn't have, we weren't at the mercy of another facility or a shipping warehouse or, you know, that we own the process and we could just decide whether or not we were going to ante up to the, to the challenge, you know? And so we grew like 400% our online sales, I should say. And it, our, our business was, quite different at that time, but it went from, we went from a 60, 40, 60% wholesale to a 40 uh, and a 40% online business to 85% online and 15% wholesale in a matter of four weeks. We grew like 400% on online sales. Wow. And um, it was a crazy ride because it, you know, it stressed every single aspect of our business to grow that quickly. But um, we, we stayed in stock better than, almost anybody else on the internet, we ramped up our harvest and we're hiring people as, you know, as quickly as we could. And shoot, we had friends in here, you know, just like, Hey, can you help us for an afternoon, you know, just to hold the phones down a little bit. And, um, it was, it was wild, but there's a lot of people, you know, that were just kind of sitting at home and, you know, they were on work leave. The whole world was just kind of a big question mark at that point. But we knew yeah. one thing that we had orders coming in the door and people waiting for, waiting for food and a lot of people that couldn't access food because grocery stores were empty. So it was almost this emergency response type situation. But yeah, thank the Lord that we had all the the resources at our fingertips that we, that we did to be able to 
to uh, answer the call, I guess. Yeah. That was that was crazy. That was really crazy. And how has the following been since then? Um, like, I, I, I guess people just Googled, like, order, like, how do I get food to my house, right? I, I guess yeah, that's right, how it right. organically happened. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm meat, blessed. Meat delivery or food delivery. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess I'm, I'm blessed in that, you know, my family has their own land and we get our own food that way. So I never experienced yeah. that. But I know it had to be scary for people going to the grocery store and seeing mm-hmm. the shelves completely empty. I can't yeah. imagine what that feels like. Yeah. Me neither. <laughs> but it was but it was at the same time. So I I mean I love to hunt and and uh and we always have ample amounts of meat, you know, in the freezer from what I've hunted and I honestly eat I guess I eat frequently um what we you know, our products but for the most part, I try to, I love to hunt. So I like to make all the things, you know, that I hunt into our products essentially. And, uh, I just enjoy that aspect also, but yeah, for a lot of customers that were calling and, and sharing with us, you know, their firsthand experience of what they were going through, it was, it was really eye opening that we had drifted so far as a culture from, from connectivity to where things come from. Yeah. And it was quite obvious in that, in that time, in that season, that it was, it was a real problem and we needed the pendulum needed to swing back the other direction to get the consumers closer to the source, um, that we, we couldn't have so many layers and so many risky, uh, aspects of our food chain that were bound to break, uh, or if they did fail, what happens? And, um, the collapse of a food chain is a scary thought to a lot of people. It's very sobering. And so it forced a lot of people to change their paradigm on how they, uh, and reevaluate, you know, how they develop their, their, their relationship with their food and where they get things and, and finding sources. And it really, it overhauled our food system in a really pow- powerful way. Um, we haven't since we were expecting, you know, sales forecasting and all the stuff was just kind of completely went out the window, but we said, okay, so what if we could, if we could salvage, I think it was 30% of the growth or 40% at the end of the day, if everything shakes out in, you know, two years later, if we've retained 30 to 40% of that business, um, we'll be really happy. And we ended up because all along, honestly, our focus is, has been so much of five-star experiences for every consumer, whether it's the packaging and the, you know, the expectations of on-time delivery and just every element, every detail that comes into to the whole experience, making sure everything arrives frozen every time, except, I mean, except for the, the half a percent of the time, you know, but managing all of that stuff to the nth degree so that the consumer experience is just that we don't want one-time customers, right? We want lifetime customers and what that takes to earn lifetime customers is what we're focused on. So that if someone hears about us through someone else or does happen to Google us and find us and stumbles on and places an order that, that they, they're, they don't want to look anywhere else. They've just, they've found the jackpot. And so focusing on that aspect rather than going out and, and getting every consumer in the, in the market, just, you know, blasting all of our product everywhere and, and spending huge amounts on marketing to get a whole bunch of one-time customers. Um, that's not been our approach. I guess it's been the, the reverse, but, so what happened when things just exploded and consumers were exposed to our product that otherwise wouldn't necessarily be because people were 
shopping for meat in stock. They weren't looking for 100% grass-fed, regenerative, this and this and this, but it exposed them once that product was delivered to their door and, it sh- and they cooked it in their pan. They're like, wow, this is different. Like the experience of it is so we, so we had 78 or 79% of what we experienced in COVID stuck and wow. we, in that business that became our new floor. And, and we thought we were going to lose ground uh, in 2022, I guess, in, in terms of growth. And, um, and it, it didn't, we are actually up 14 or 17% still, you know, over, 2020 2021 and uh and this year is um is still growing over that so i I think it's just a testament to the to the the difference of quality of product and the eating experience of regeneratively raised meat is it speaks for itself right Mm -hmm. we always say the body doesn't lie and once you once you experience it and you feel it people say i just feel different and there's there's a lot of science behind that there's phytochemicals in product that is raised the way that we raise animals that is scientifically uh proven that there's more energy right through phytochemicals in the product that we sell on a four to one ratio and um versus you know a feedlot or a capo style uh, product and so it's not placebo or anything like that it's it's real everybody thought it was kind of placebo for a long time just because it you know it it makes sense that you would if you have a clear conscience about what you're eating of course you're going to feel good about it right but that's a feelings based but to actually have it be um biological response that you have more energy after you eat this type of meat uh there was just a meat study done that came out this spring that that i that was able to pinpoint those that phytochemical, phytochemical difference that that indicates the reason why people say that they feel energized, you know, after consuming the hundred percent grass fed, regeneratively raised type meats. So, interesting stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm reading a book right now um, by David Montgomery. It's called "What Your What Your Food Ate." And oh. he he talks about the phytochemicals um, on regenerative beef. But he also mentioned something oh, yeah. about bison uh, very briefly, and, and I'm thinking that you can expand on it. But he was saying that bison has is one of the most nutrient dense meat out there compared to like if you compare a bison that's regeneratively raised versus a cow, I think there's like a double or triple the amount of nutrients in the bison. Yeah. Yep. There was a study that was done. So interestingly enough, like bison is culturally um the most significant animal to north america essentially right it's the most iconic and people you know that come from all over the world and um living just outside of yellowstone for a few years like the amount of international traffic for people to come see bison is mind-blowing right people don't most people don't you know fly international to come see deer elk or or bears though those are cool animals but it's the bison you know everybody wants to see a bison um but as as well renowned as they are globally from a nutritional standpoint there's almost zero information to this point there's almost been zero um they're they're relatively unstudied i guess Mm. uh, nutritionally until there was just a recent study done that was over this past year 
that we actually one of our one of our, uh, of our partner ranches participated in on the 100% grass fed regenerative product that's literally you know came off of our ranches um, or supply ranches I should say not not NSB acres in particular but um, the product that's going into our packaging and comparing that against um, some grain finished bison and trying to see what the differences are and, and really say, is there, is there a difference? And if they are, if there is, what are they out of that study that ended up being the most extensive, um, meat study ever. It's, it's more, uh, e even more extensive than any beef study that's been done today. And it was the top 1500 nutrients found in bison meat is what they studied 1500. Um, but that's only 1500 out of over 40,000 different nutrients found in bison meat. That's, yeah. that's unbelievable. I'm not exactly sure what, what, what beef is. I do know that the Dr. Ben Bleet, the one who did the study, uh, out of Utah state said that bison is the most nutrient dense protein on the planet that he has found. And he's, he's, uh, pretty world renowned in, in studying high level athletes and taking tissue samples out of humans and seeing what makes them exceptional versus other humans, you know, and, and trying to correlate. Okay. So if they eat a certain thing, like scientifically, you know, if they eat the most nutrient dense, um, uh, foods on the planet, what does that do to them? You know, eat, or if, um, if you are what you eat, essentially, uh, to what degree is that truth, uh, scientifically. And so he was, he's dug into this a lot and he said, you know, he doesn't think that there's another more nutrient dense protein on the, or, or food on the planet than, 100% grass-fed, regeneratively raised bison, and so it's it's pretty crazy the um, the fatty acid profile comparison that he did to grass-fed beef. Even all along, we thought it was slightly better than grass-fed beef, and and there's a four to one ratio on omega six to omega three um, fatty acid profile. So omega threes are the positive, and mm -hmm. omega sixes um, you just want it to be a, a basically a one to one balance is perfect, right? So like salmon, um, actually pastured pork that's raised regeneratively, like on a, on an as nature intended diet mm -hmm. is almost a one to one ratio. Oh, I didn't uh, know what pork fat. was. Yeah. So oh. pork always gets demonized, but it's the way it's raised. That's mm -hmm. the problem. Um, and then grass fed lamb also. So those three are kind of like the pinnacle of, of omega three, omega six fatty acid profile. Um, most consumed pro and bison was always like, oh, it's somewhere you know, somewhere just back from that, around that grass-fed beef probably, but it's but it's more nutrient-dense and it's typically leaner, so it's healthier. It was all hypothetical. You know. So now this study is essentially proved, but what they found in the study was, was bison, 100% grass-fed and finished bison compared to, to like-raised beef. Um, the bison was one7 1.5 to 1.7 there was a little bit of a range to one which is exceptional i mean that's three times better than than grass-fed beef so that's just the the fatty acid profile um differences so bison are yeah they're they're unmatched i mean i i don't everything we thought we knew or or, or seemed like again from anecdotal evidence or experience um seemed to point to the fact that they were superior and now the study was just like um a big billboard that said it's significantly different. Um, so it's pretty cool. Pretty cool to see that come out. And now they're doing phase two on that study to answer questions that came out of the first study. That's always how science works, right? Yeah. Um, 
What's, but yeah, it's it's pretty cool. What's the total count of bison? Um, how are the numbers looking? Yeah, there's around four hundred thousand in the world right now. So that's that's substantial, especially coming back from you know the late eighteen hundreds where there was less than a thousand um, at their lowest point where they were nearly extinct. So then conservation, basically the bison is the impetus for conservation um, around the world. But it started here and it started with bison. It started here in, in North America, I should say, and it started with bison. It's kind of the the, the test species or the species that they're trying to, to save and conserve and not just throw a few in a zoo. All that, that's kind of where it started, right, is just grab a few. And and um, actually the one of the main conservationists, William T. Hornaday, uh, was a taxidermist for the Smithsonian Museum, and he was like, "Well, these things are these things are dying off fast, and they're going to be extinct shortly. So I better go out and shoot a few and put them in the, in the museum. That way, people for generations to come can see what an actual bison looked like because they're gone essentially. And um, but they they ended up capturing a few and put a few in the Bronx Zoo. Um, but then there was a few of these wild herds, you know, that were found uh, a few in Canada, one in Alaska." Uh, one in Arizona, um, uh, Yellowstone was was a little a little pocket. Northern New Mexico on the Bermejo Park Ranch, um, there was a little pocket of of bison that were found that were 100% wild. Yeah. Caprock um, Canyon State Park in Texas was another one, um, but there was just a few pockets, you know, of of little isolated herds that hadn't been completely hunted out that were in really really rugged, disconnected country. Um, so they're essentially on an island, but, um, yeah, that was all that was left and they captured a lot of these animals and, and again, put them in the, put them in a zoo and, or they'll put them on, they put them on ranches and they started breeding them to try to save these animals. And that's, I think the, the difference and what makes me so passionate about what we do at North star, um, and in the, the meat space is people need to recognize like things that just get put in a glass case and set on a shelf, um, they just pedal along and there's a lot of conservation efforts, you know, um, this bird watching mentality, as I call it, and there's nothing against bird watching. I love, love all sorts of species and love bird watching, <laughs> but we can't just sit back and, and, and enjoy from afar. We have to be active and we have to be, um, engaged in, in the, in the future of, of these species. Right. And so the, the way that the purpose of bison is, to be consumed, right? That's their main purpose. And while they're living on the planet, they do incredible things for, uh, for landscapes. They regenerate landscapes faster and better than any other plains animal or any other, any other, um, large animal on the planet. And, um, just from their herding instincts and the way that they interact and the way that they move and the way it's just really fascinating, but that creates a really nutrient dense product. Um, which ultimately feeds predators, which are humans and grizzlies and wolves and all sorts of things, you know, that run around on the, on the planet that need to eat. And yeah. so we as humans get to benefit from incredibly nourishing meat. But if we don't eat these animals, then they become set on a glass case. And there's only about 30,000 bison in uh, public ownership mm. between state parks, national parks, you know, and, and wild herds that are just roaming outside of uh, fences. 370,000 have been the result of ranching efforts to try to grow and, and really propagate these animals. They're living on a lot of really, really 
rugged natural landscapes where bison always were and should be but the encroachment of of a plow and, and cattle basically those are the things that will that will kill bison faster than anything in, in modern times uh, and ultimately that's almost what killed them back then was the encroachment of settlement and today what settlement looks like is is plowing and and beef cattle mm-hmm. um, and so long as beef cattle are, are worth more than bison they'll always have the upper hand essentially you- and um, beef cattle will will slowly you know continue to to squeeze out and outcompete bison for the range is it so as bison have oh sorry go ahead no i was gonna ask you is it easier to raise beef cattle than bison like are we like what are the reasons why and do you think we'll ever make a shift back to bison i hope i don't like being pessimistic ever but it's it's a it's a hard knowing or seeing the way that our that our country is um and is in modern times i guess with with development and and fencing and we're and we're and just infrastructure in general which creates um just a lot of barriers for free roaming animals and and the ability for animals now the west is huge and there's a lot of a lot of opportunity and a lot of acres for bison to roam but I beef cattle are easy. Um, they're relatively dumb. <laughs> they're they're easy to handle. Bison are are not dumb. They're extremely frustrating to handle. Sometimes they're dangerous. Um, mm. They're they're a wild animal. They have instincts intact that um, are dangerous to be around. And but those same instincts are what keep them keep them alive and well, and allow them to to live and thrive on their own when bison are thriving beef are dying you know or or i I guess i should say it the other way around that when beef are dying you know through inclement weather blizzards and storms and and all sorts of drought or whatever beef just essentially just stand around and die they just don't there's no there's no instinct to survive or will to will to survive really left Hmm. in beef cattle unfortunately and so they're extremely vulnerable um I don't see them as a sustainable resource, essentially. You know, if we were to pull all the fences and, and pull all management, bison would thrive and, and beef would just eventually, there'd be some wild wild beef cattle that would that would survive, essentially. Um, but by and by and large, they would all pass away. Um, so anyway, from a management standpoint, you know, you see bison as being superior. They're just a lot more challenging and, and people just have the tendency to be, to just want easier. Right. And so that's, that's not bison. Um, they're better, but they're, they're definitely not easier. They take a lot more infrastructure. They take more planning, but the reward should be higher. Um, it is higher in, in, in different regards right now, but, um, the, there's probably in, as far as bison ranching goes versus beef ranching, you're probably going to make the same amount of money with beef as you are with bison right now. And, wow. and if beef are easier, that's what people are going to go for. That's what a lot of people know too. And so it's, it's a default, you know, it's what grandpa raised and what dad raised. And so we got to stay, you know, beef cattle ranch. And, um, you know, you watch the movie Yellowstone and, and you see some of that played out in that, uh, or that, that series, I guess, not the movie, but the, the show, you know, you see some of the, the war, you know, the West and, and how, how heated that stuff gets. And, um, 
it's yeah, it's it's a war, you know. I mean, there's still a bisoner at the center at the center of that of that cultural fight still, you know. And, and unfortunately, they get caught in the crosshairs and it just about wiped them off the planet. Mm. Can you paint a picture for uh, for someone who who's never heard of of North Star or who's thinking about ordering what? Um, mm-hmm. You, it sounds like you collaborate with another with a number of different farms and ranches to mm-hmm. uh, to package the product. And, and does it all go through the same processing facility? Like, where do the chickens come from? Because you offer elk, you offer cow, you offer a, a wide yep. range of different um, animal products on the website. So how does yep. it how does it all yeah. come together? Uh 29 years of networking yeah. <laughs> relationships. Um, it's, we have a lot of really, really special supply relationships and they come slow. I would say one thing that's most frustrating about ordering from North Star is our, our ability to keep things stocked. Mm. Uh, a lot of people voice frustration about, oh, it's always sold out or gosh, as soon as it comes in, it's sold out. We will never cut a corner and we will always do what is right? We'll never go buy some animals out of sale barn to harvest them and, and keep things in stock. Um, what we have, what we raise, and this is a, a three to five year process of onboarding a new a new supplier and getting their land transitioned over to meet our standards and our criteria for what we want to produce, and also that the animals are a really good eating experience that they have um, a really good life. Uh, and there's just a lot of different aspects to even even regenerative or grass-fed people or uh, ranchers minded people in that in that space we have they have to they have to level up again even to be um to to meet the quality and criteria that we expect of ourselves and that we would produce a really well fattened finished high quality eating experience product not just something that meets the we we say there's two different types of grass-fed grass finished and grass starved we're, we're never going to be on the grass starved, right? There's grass fed by default because they didn't want to feed him anything else. And so they just kind of like, well, go find what you can, you know, and it might be tin cans and cardboard out there, you know, and, and that's yeah. kind of what they're eating on. And, and you see that, unfortunately, and that's what creates a bad experience with a lot of people that say, most people that say, oh, grass fed is terrible. It's because that's the, that's the grass fed by default or the grass starved um, or organic. You know, people say, oh, this is hundred percent organic. Well, it was organic by neglect almost, you know, that they didn't want to treat their animals well. Um, Meanwhile, they have parasites and, and they're just emaciated and that's not what we want. That's not what we're a part of. Um, But so I guess, yeah, we have a lot of supply relationships and we're intimately involved with them on weekly basis. We're constantly, you know, visiting and, and having meetings and, you know, going and, seeing their animals multiple times a year and, and they're coming and delivering animals on site. And we process a hundred percent of everything that uh, in order to get a North star label, it has to meet our raising, raising criteria. Uh, there's a signed affidavit on, um, um, on file with the uh, uh, down in Madison at the, at the Capitol with the department of, of ag and consumer trade and consumer protection. So it's, it's legally binding. Uh, agreement that we sign ourselves to say we're we're holding up to these standards and um, so that's that's one element that's legally binding for us and all of our suppliers we're basically swearing to oath that this is what we're doing Uh, but then we also verify you know trust get verify so we're we're always on site and we have an open gate policy for any of our acres that we we 
say, well, what is the what is the ultimate standard that we would want to to reach? You know, is there a third party certification that would earn consumer trust? Well, we want consumer trust, so we're going to invite consumers out and basically be a be an open book, and um, that that will earn their trust essentially. And and anybody that's listening to this is more than welcome to come out and and enjoy a ranch day or a ranch tour and see exactly what we do and hear about it and see the animals. But um, yeah, that's our supply relationships are near and dear to our hearts. They don't come easy and they're highly verified, but everything that gets a North star label, like I said, comes through our facilities that we would harvest them ourselves, that we would cut and package them ourselves. And then we do all of our own shipping as well. And so when you call and place an order or we have a tracking issue or anything like that, we hundred percent take care of it. You just give us a call, shoot us an email, message us on Instagram, whatever it takes, you know, and uh, just reach out and, um, and we'll get you taken care of. Dude, that's a lot to manage. So you, do y'all, if, if someone, I guess, is, is there an application process? Like someone applies to become part of the network and then you have to go verify like how they're running their operation? Yeah. So basically the, the way that our, that our network grows is word of mouth, almost yeah. like our customer base for the most part. Um, we don't advertise that, Hey, we're looking for new suppliers. You know, we're not, we're not voicing that necessarily. We just have, we're focusing on the, the relationships, the relationships that we have. And then this person knows that person and say, Hey, I think they would be, they fit the mold. They're like me, you know, they're another one of us quote unquote. Um, they're kind of crazy. <laughs> so, uh, so we would invite them in and say, Hey, you know, let's have a meeting. And so we invite them in and say, this is, this is the honest truth. You know, it's not easy. Are you willing to sign up for this? And this is, these are requirements. This is what we're going to do. It could be a really fun ride, but you've got to be passionate about it. Otherwise you're, um, you'll fall off quick. Uh-huh. And so again, it's, it's, you're just constantly swimming upstream, blazing new trails and, that really, really invigorates some people and other people it just, it burns them out. So finding the right people is always just like employees, just like customers. You know, you got to find people who find, say things that matter to people who care. And so finding people who care, uh, we, we feel we have a lot to say that matters, but not everybody cares about it, whether it's a perspective or, you know, there's a lot of life events that happen to people, um, farmers and, and also, you know, they'll have, They'll have an experience. It might be a, I might be on a, on an old family farm or in a corporate job, and they have a life event that that brings them to their knees health wise, and they have to start looking into this and unpack their own health. And they say, "Wow, you know, I'm really passionate. I see the value of this product now, and I want to be a, a, a part of the the production of and feeding other people well in this in this way with whatever product that I'm, whatever species that I'm passionate about." Um, and so, yeah, we have uh, on a lot of our, our farms too, there's multi-species um, um, symbiosis going on where, you know, the, the chickens and the turkeys and the pigs and the beef are all complementing grass-fed lamb and they're all complementing each other by grazing rotations and things like that. So it's pretty cool um, that way as well. But um, yeah, it's, again, it's not a, there's not a real formula to it. It's just kind of organic growth. And again, like I said, it takes three to five years before when the conversation starts to the point where we harvest our first animal, that's about the time period. So it's a long, slow, arduous process to, to walk out. And a lot of times that tests people's commitment, you know, right out the gate, they say, Ooh, financially, I can't wait that long, or 
whatever. And so there's a lot of financial cost to it as well and pressure that you have to, you have to be really committed Mm. um, or you, you won't, you won't make it. There's a a lot of certifications. You you talked about the organic certification and I just talked to a, uh, a winery that they just got certified in. It's, I don't remember what it is. It's like the regenerative organic certification. How much weight, like how much weight do y'all put in, in certifications uh, in general? Do y'all try to obtain any or, um, like what's y'all's thoughts on it? We, um, the only certification that we pursue doggedly is, (laughs) is our inspection, um, service of the safety and the quality of the food. Cause there's, you know, there's a whole food safety element to this that we're, that we're managing very tightly as well. And we want to excel at that as well as anybody and, and pr- be providing the the safest quality, the safest food on the planet as well from a food safety standpoint. Outside of that, everything is watered down. The, the standard that we hold ourselves to, any certification that I've ever come across at this point that we have ever, my, my mom and dad included, because I was only eight when we started this thing. So obviously I didn't have uh, too much knowledge of what I have today and, or, or oversight. So anything that we've ever come across to this point has been a dumbing down. Um, I'm not sure there's always new ones popping up and it's really, really, really difficult. This good. The best things are always so nuanced that you can't hardly put them in a box, Mm -hmm. right? How do you document and say never or always anytime you you use those two words, you're sacrificing somewhere and boxing yourself in and, and, leaving yourself um, options that aren't always in the best interest of the consumer or the animal or the land. Um, And so that's where I really, really hesitate to get too excited about a certification because by default certifications um, are and policies, right? Don't, they don't uh, encourage autonomy they don't encourage um problem solving they just tell you exactly what you do when you need when you need to do it and how you you know and how it should be done and who can predict that who can preempt covid who can preempt and predict you know situations that haven't really been experienced yet so you're constantly chasing your tail trying to come up with new policies for (laughs) new experiences and it's just it's kind of silly it's a little bit of a wasted um a wasted energy or effort in in my opinion and and i would say this too as as far as there's red flags as far as what consumers can look at uh there's critical mass points that you cannot cross uh, in the food system and all i'm going to say if there's a national chain carrying a a certain product it's probably too big to be truly authentic to the degree that 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 you are likely looking for you know that is that's the what we're passionate about i guess are even down to our field harvest you can't scale the way that we harvest animals respectfully and we're we're way 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 too small to be able to supply a national chain grocery store with product um and to, to conceivably get there and still maintain the integrity of what we produce and how we produce it. It's, it's almost impossible to think about managing to that 
scale all the intricacies and details of every single process and every single step. Now, there's an awesome quote that I heard. Uh, I think it was the founder of either North, North Face or Patagonia uh, that said he had a sign above his desk that said, no detail is too small. And he had crossed off two. And so basically it just said, no detail is small. And I think that is so true, right? There's no, no details are small, right? Especially when it comes to human relationships and human interaction with our food, like everything matters substantially. Um, and so to have this mindset of, um, or, or when you're looking at your food and seeing where you're sourcing it from, if there's a, if there's a, if there's enough volume going through a certain pipeline to be able to supply a national type grocery store, it's, it's, it's not what you're looking for. That should be a red flag, um, from a critical mass standpoint, but also when it comes to certifications, if it's got a certain popular, uh, certified bug, there's probably, um, compromises somewhere along the way that they're having to make that aren't necessarily in the best interest of that product and the consumer. Yeah. What was interesting, um, I don't remember exactly what I asked them, but it was somewhere along the lines of like regenerative organic, you know, I thought that they would become, they would come and test their soil and be out in the field and really like looking at stuff. And he said that they don't come and look at their fields. Um, they look at their paperwork is what they look at. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I'm kind of a, a pessimist, half the glasses, half empty kind of guy anyway. And I'm like, Oh, so it's a money grab is yeah. what it is. Yeah, that, exactly. That, that yep. Yeah. Yep. Somebody's looking for that, that seal that basically people can put their trust in and say, okay, I, you know, I'll give you money. They, it's a, it's in a, in a producer's mind, it's their fast track to consumer trust. Yeah. And that doesn't come quickly. People have to, have to be exposed to a certain certification for a long period of time to be able to earn the consumer trust so that they can trust it on your packaging. Um, it's trust is not earned overnight. And anytime you try to cut those corners, it costs a lot of money and it's rarely effective. Yeah. And yeah, a money grab is the, is the perfect example. And it's, and I feel sorry for, you know, a lot of those people that are investing in those types of things because it's, it's it's a bit of a scam. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's sad to see. You ever seen Tommy Boy? Oh yeah, that uh, yeah. just reminded me of that little <laughs> of that scene. He's like, "Well, I could put a, a label." I forget what he says. That part about a butcher's yeah. ass or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a funny part. That's a funny part. Yeah, something about a T bone. Yeah, yeah. A good look at T bone. Yeah, I forget. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna have to go look I it up now. Um, yeah, you, you talked about, uh, the, the field harvest. Can you, uh, paint a picture of that? Cause that, that seems mm. like every time you, you talked about it, you can tell it's something special to you and, and how y'all manage that. So can you talk about like what a field harvest looks like? Yeah. It's the best hunt ever. Like if you could script, you know, I'm a hunter. Uh, if you could script the best hunt, you know, as far as, uh, the way that you came upon that animal or the way that you found that animal or the way that you were able to, to take that animal's life. Um, it's the most humane you could possibly write it up. Right. So uh, we just harvested a bunch of elk this last week and they were so chill that nearly every single animal that we had harvested was laying down, chewing its cud. Um, and so it's, we have a, it's basically a, you know, military grade sniper rifle, precision rifle that we're, that we have built with a suppressor on it. 
um, high power optics and it's, it's built for putting bullet holes inside of bullet holes or bullets inside of bullet holes. And so we can sit back at a distance and select the, the animals that are ready for harvest and hit essentially a, you know, the size of a dime every single time to, to hit the brain stem or, or the brain itself. Um, and it's instant, you know, um, instant lights out for that animal. It's the, it's the most peaceful way you can, you can possibly harvest an animal. I mean, it, we had an animal welfare, um, auditor come out and, and, and do an audit on us and, uh, her remark at the end of the day. And she was very professional the whole entire time writing, making notes and, and just spent the whole entire day and watched several harvests. And at the end, she just basically summarized and she said, I cannot imagine a more, a more peaceful way to go. Mm. And I don't even think she was necessarily even referencing to the animals that were like, well, if I guess, you know, if you got to do that, this is probably the, you know, the, the least of the, the worst or the best of the worst or whatever you want to say. But just in general, you know, the, the animals are literally living their best life out in uh, the wide open pastures that we have right around our, our processing facility sits right in the middle of a, of a farm of an 80 acre uh, farm and so we have pastures out there that these animals are grazing through just like they would any other day of their life and um, so they get uh, drive out there with a the tractor and like I said sit from a distance and and harvest those animals and and quiet and um, it's uh, it's pretty amazing so it's yeah the, the animals are raised up until that point as if they were essentially wild, you know, on their wild native, native habitat and diet. And, uh, they get harvested in a way that's, like I said, the best hunt ever. Mm. And, um, it's pretty cool. Is, is that something it's that a, you do a, with, a, uh, with your local community? Like, do you bring people out and do it with them and show them how to um, clean and skin and all that stuff? We sure should. I know, uh, we have a lot of, exp- <laughs> to this point, we're very, uh, we're Midwestern folks and we don't necessarily, we take a lot of pride in what we do, but we don't see ourselves as special or anything like that. And we focus so much on the consumer as, as doing it well. And, and we, we need to be better about inviting them in so that they can experience it themselves and not just us doing it and them serving exclusively. That's something we're really passionate about, but yeah, we could, there's an aspect we haven't to this point, you know, offered workshops or, or field days or anything like that to be able to watch a, a harvest and invite people in for a, you know, um, basically a class on how we, cause yeah, there's so much interesting aspects once you start skinning and there's so much methodology. Yesterday was our, our, our harvest day and I was training a, uh, a new employee and I said, this all looks like madness, but there's a meaning to everything you know, everything, every single step and the reason why you do think, do things in a certain, in a certain way, in a certain order and, um, and harvesting glands and organs and all these things. And, and essentially, uh, you know, a really food safe way that, that separates, um, the, the yuck from the, (laughs) from the, the stuff that's all edible and keeping that extremely clean and, and, um, almost, sanitary almost like a it's almost like i envision it almost like a hospital environment where we're it's not nearly that that clean because there's there's blood and there's dirt from you know the hides and all this kind of stuff you know from the animals just being out in the 
out in the wild, but to be able to separate those in a very methodical way uh, to make sure that everything's clean and sanitary. And, and um, it's, it's really cool. It's really cool to be able to, to know the, and see the anatomy of the animal and, and all the bounty that it gives, like all the different aspects, the, the organ, you know, that you pull out and, and knowing um, the nutrient density and, and the, and the nuances of that particular organ versus the, the one that's li- almost literally right next to it, you know? Yeah. And it's really interesting to, to see and experience that, that whole process is very emotional. I was just thinking about, I took my stepdaughter hunting for the first time. Um, she grew up in Ohio and, um, okay. she's never been hunting before. So I took her, I think she okay. was 13 or 14 at the time. First time really holding a gun, doing the whole thing. And watching her skin the deer was very emotional for me. And I don't know if it was as emotional for her, but, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in this. And I just I've seen it my entire life. So you almost, you almost not really take it for granted, but it's just something that you're used to. But when you mm-hmm. see someone that's never experienced that in their life and they're working mm-hmm. through this, you know, and it's like, it's a, and it, Maybe it's because it was a child and now I'm watching her do this. It's very emotional mm-hmm. and it's very spiritual. Yeah. And it's like, it almost takes you back to this primal instinct that you have that we all have in us, you know? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. You're hitting the heart string there. Um, yeah. I would say like there's, it's, it's hard to describe, right. Yeah. What, what those emotions are. Like you're saying, like, I don't, I don't quite understand what, what was going on, but it was very emotional and, and spiritual. And I think in that process of harvesting an animal's life, like recognizing being fully conscious and fully aware of what you're doing, you know, that we're not avoiding any, any truths to what we're doing here. Um, but doing it in a way that's so respectful is and honoring an animal's life to the degree and the, in the regard that we have and, 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 basically bringing dignity to this animal that's going to be food for a lot of people and nourish a lot of people is that's a really 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 powerful thing i don't know that there's a there's a there's an earthly experience that is as profound as taking the transformation of taking the life of an animal and taking that responsibility and shouldering that burden essentially and then maintaining the, the respect and kind of shouldering that responsibility like i said from taking their life and then fully utilizing their carcass, the all the all the parts and pieces that come from that animal in a way that is that justifies their their being, right? So I would say, like you know, an animal basically the how an animal dies justifies as 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 being, it's living almost in in when it comes to to meat terms, you know. So we take that animal disrespectfully and we throw half the carcass away, we waste you know, half the, half of, of what it has to offer. That's a disrespectful, uh, we just disrespected its entire life because that was the culmination. That was the pinnacle of, of its, and that was the bloom of the flower, if you will. You know, if we pluck a few petals off and, you know, throw it on the table and let it wilt, mm-hmm. that's extremely disrespectful. And, um, our job is to pluck that animal in its full bloom and maintain the beauty through the entire process so that the end consumer gets to benefit from it in the full bounty of, of what it was intended for. Right. And that ultimately respects the animal's life um, from the very beginning. And so I think that's, that's a, that's a really cool process. We, I, 
I'm passionate about. I guess a lot of the reason that we moved out west um, too was for me to to focus a little bit more on guiding hunts. I love to guide elk hunts in particular. That's like my favorite, but all species. Um, but when you take an animal and, and walking up on that animal for the first time, not having shot, basically just having been the guide through that process and, and a client comes along, you get to show them an experience and in, in you through your eyes, right. And get to see things differently. And there's a lot of people that have hunted even that don't, that don't necessarily see things the same way that I see things. And so to be able to show them, uh, or, or bring them through that process and that journey um, in a way that's different than what they've experienced before. There's a lot of guys that, that do get emotional. They're like, man, this it's different, you know, to not just see that animal as, as a thing or an object that it's, that it was living in and it's food. And it's like to be respected and, and to have a little moment of respect, you know, when you first approach that animal. And, and that's the same things that we're doing through, uh, through North Star too, you know, with every animal, there's a lot of weight of, of a lot of responsibility that we carry. And every time there's a, there's a sense of, of sadness, you know, when you harvest an animal's life, but you know where it's going and you could be proud of what you've done, you know, to this point to, and, and further down the chain to be able to bring a lot of respect and, and uh, dignity to that, to that, that animal's life in the process. Yeah. I think you explained it perfectly by saying, like, I'm not good at putting that whole process into words. Um, I'm not very eloquently. I, I just can't do it. I've talked to a couple of vegans on the podcast and yeah. uh, not have debates or anything, but just talked about, you know, our lifestyles. And I, I said those words that, you know, I'm honoring the animal after I, I take its life and I show respect to it. And, you know, they challenged me on that. And, it's it's hard to to explain like this animal that i i took its life from is going to be feeding is going to be feeding my family is going to be feeding my soul um it's providing nourishment to my my entire family and i'm in control of this whole process and i and i'm i'm in tune with with mother nature i guess versus someone's who's whatever diet you're on it doesn't have to be a diet debate but people are so removed from that process of of harvesting their animal and and getting the food for their family it's 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 a wild thing how separated we are nowadays yeah i think it's a reflection of and i mean people can hate me for saying this some people will hate me for saying this but i think it's if you can expand your mind or, or be open to the thought process of it's a sign of it's an indication i guess of ignorance um because veganism almost everyone that's vegan is not vegan for nutritional benefit right they're trying to equal up to or replace say basically i don't have to eat meat and i can basically replace those nutrients in different ways through plant-based alternatives. That's not entirely true on a, nutrition, on a nutritional panel. You can, you can, but those are not necessarily all bioavailable. Your body doesn't, can't utilize those. So, so for, even from a, from a nutritional standpoint, no one is vegan because it's better nutritionally. That's not really, that's not really an argument where I have a lot of respect for people that are vegan is 
being convicted about a certain way of life or a certain ideal or, or level of respect that they have for other life and altering their own lifestyle to um, to to respect those convictions that they have and doing something about it. I have a huge amount of respect for that. I wouldn't, I don't have any, any desire to participate in factory farming and, and factory slaughter and, and kind of this huge machine that just sees animals as canned goods, essentially. That's not anything that I want to be a part of either though going vegan isn't isn't the that's not the answer because so nutritionally um there's no basis to stand on to say that vegan is is better if you look at the so let's back up i guess and look at the landscape what's what's best for the the land the animals and the people right that's what we say it's triple bottom line has to has to be a win for consumers and and people who are living on the land it has to be a win for the animals that are living on the land uh it has to be the land a win for the land itself you remove animals from the equation and you just have people and land land suffers and people suffer land land is invigorated when there are animals interacting with that land to it to um, uh, to ignite, basically they're they're the what do you want to say they're the they're the refresh the refresh button I should say uh, or the or the the, re, the reset button I should say on that land um, um, reinvigorating itself. I don't know how to say it in really layman's terms, but restarting the 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 plant life and the soil life and and in a way that actually builds soil and 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 doesn't just maintain but it actually adds soil and it and it and it adds to the life underground and adds to the life above ground and it's just this beautiful process so those are animals are are essential to that process that cannot be be replaced through mechanical uh, invigoration it's it's not nearly the same there's the, the way that animals interact with the land, the way that they stimulate the soil, the way that they urinate and, and defecate and, and trample and graze. And what they do is irreplicable by human intervention. So animals are, are necessary. A vegan diet is in direct conflict with animals being on landscapes. Mm every farmer that is trying to raise a crop and get a crop to market sees animals as inferior. They're eating dollars out of their pocket. And so they're not welcome here. Essentially, if I'm running a vegan farm, I don't want to see animals out there because they're eating profits and they're introducing, you know, crop damage and introducing a lot of things that I don't want. I, I want my, I want my farm as sterile as possible with water and sunlight and that's it that's not a system that i can that i can be excited about supporting because that land is is ultimately being degraded by or being supported by um by hauling in non-native nutrients essentially it's i mean you're you're hauling in you're mining the earth to be able to, to replace what you're shipping out in um in in, in produce that's 
that's a degrading that cannot possibly be regenerative without animals on the land right mm-hmm. so in a in a system as as north star operates the land is benefiting massively because we have we want animals out there right we want the land to to produce more to be able to to feed more animals and in, in in ways that is deeply nourishing to the animals which also ultimately feeds humans in a in a more deeply nourishing way and if we're harvesting them in in really uh, respectful and dignified manner and then carrying that all through the process that's that's the linchpin i think that that leads the door or opens the door to now talking about so if we have to if we're going to eat animals how are we going to do this um because the land the land is robbed of of an essential piece of the puzzle essential piece of the pie um that is not welcome in a a vegan uh, production environment so i i'm passionate about that concept or that that um that discussion because it's um i respect the people that uphold those beliefs but it's a sign of ignorance in my opinion and it's not it's not any fault of their own i'm not singling singling anyone out but i would invite anyone out to to let's go take a look at north star and see what's going on there and experience it yourself and then let's go let's go you know on the other side of the county and see what's going on in a in a, in a cornfield or a soybean field or a, uh, a pea field or a canola field or whatever whatever crop you're you're looking at um that you want to talk about from a or or a kale field or lettuce <laughs> field. i mean anything i mean it's just it's monocrop it's monoculture there's no diversity there's no there's no life welcome outside of what you're trying to produce out of the soil mm. which is ultimately um degraded soil that's that's only getting worse so anyway it's a it's a broken system but ultimately it's a consequence of our uh, industrializing animal agriculture yeah. which is and we've done it to ourselves and um it's something that I, we're passionate about doing differently yeah you touched on um i guess the the last thing i wanted to hit on is that north star you, you don't waste anything you offer mm-hmm. all the the organ meat and you know a, a wide range of it man are people mm-hmm. becoming more receptive to eating organ meat or absolutely i think everybody has a desire to especially now there's so much uh so much hype around organs i mean liver king's fairly controversial (laughs) but um he's a guy that's put things on the map dr uh dr saladino has um done a great job of of educating people uh um, the masses essentially on the value of organs and it's been known for quite a while by a lot of the professional athletes and and people who really understand uh human performance and what creates the most uh, the most vibrant human being the most exceptional performance you know human being and that's i think that's what's really interesting i'm super passionate about about lifting and and human performance you know from that standpoint not only just mentally but physically like what you know what does what are those things that that uh that make you better and what are those things that that don't and um and just understanding a lot of that kind of stuff but but organs are are superfood like 
the, the definition of superfood and people recognizing that and really coming around that and celebrating that and getting excited about it. The tripping point still for almost anyone is, is the palatability. They don't taste like candy. Uh, although I think our, um, I think it, it, it also takes a, it's a paradigm shift for people to recognize, like once your body recognizes, like this is good food and this is what it tastes like. I think it's different. You can, the, you can recognize your body can be trained to, they taste very different than almost anything else, but nutritionally they're different than almost anything else on the planet as well. So I think naturally the, the flavor is going to be going to be different, but if your body knows that that's what good tastes like, it's interesting how your body starts to adapt and, and start to crave that. And once that, that, um, that flavor, you know, bursts in your mouth, you're like, Ooh, that's, that's what I need. I know that because I connect it to how my body feels yeah. uh, after I've eaten it. So that biological response, I think we've broken that in as a culture because we just haven't eaten it and, and our bodies don't really even recognize it almost. So, but over time, uh, I definitely see where, where I, it's, it becomes a lot more palatable to me, but in one way that we've really became intentional about getting organs out to, out to the public and in ways that is more consumable has been through our ground blends and incorporating organs in with muscle meat in a way that everybody, anybody that, that eats, uh, enjoys a burger, you know, or a ground meat, something of some sort. And so it's the most, it's the easiest way to incorporate it into tacos and spaghetti and chili and I mean yeah. a hamburger or whatever you're going to consume that uses ground meat you can just substitute with a ground blend and get uh, a little bit of a little bit of organ in, in every meal or a few meals a week doesn't have to be every meal but yeah we have uh, that's been uh, we're really passionate about developing those lines and, and going even further with that but we believe also that that nature is not lacking anywhere right that everything we need as as consumers exists in nature and when you start understanding how nature thrives and and the yield of the yield of the land being the animals that are consuming really nutrient dense massively diverse um uh forages and things that are not really palatable to humans but they upcycle and they 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 harvest all those all those nutrients and gets condensed into their into their muscle meat and then we consume the muscle and we get all the the highly palatable benefits of those and organs um so then we take that and then we we create um blends and things and and once you start looking at the the different nutrient profile that's found in organs a lot of what we're supplementing on the expensive you know supplement side of pill popping and things like that gets replaced just through diet. And so through convenience and affordability of blends versus, you know, a supplementation type diet, that's, that's our really our we're excited about being able to, to kind of change the tide on, on where people put their money that they can put it into their food and get all the, get all the, the bioavailable nutrients out of their food rather than, um, you know, a handful of, of capsules in the morning. And, so that's, and that can be done through the, the various organs, you know, that we're harvesting. And, and it's really, it's amazing. Is there an organ that you recommend for first time triers to uh, try first? 
Um, liver is always the one that um, that gets the most hype, and for good reason. It's it's super powerful. It is it's very strong tasting. You know, it's got that strong iron undertone. So we have different blends. I would say that's the way that I would encourage people to go if they're if they're trying to get into incorporating organs into your diet. Go to a blend. We have a our regular ground blend, which is kind of our our OG blend, our, our very mm-hmm. first blend that we made 10, 12 years ago with heart and liver, and that's that's a great one. Heart, liver, and seventy five percent trim. So it's it's a, a good amount of liver and heart, but not overpowering. And then uh, one of our most recent ones that we came out with that we just launched here this past summer was our old world blend, which has seven different organs in it, but it's, it's dialed back. So it's a smaller percentage. So it's actually more palatable and you get uh, heart, liver, kidney, spleen, pancreas, thymus, and adrenal all in, in correlation to what the animal would yield. Mm. So we think there's a lot of, a lot of intentionality behind, you know, the, the percentage of the ratio of that organ within the animal too, and, and what our bodies need. So it was cool, man. Yeah. I would say, you know, check out, if you're interested, just check out the website. We've got 11 different blends, just uh, ground types, just in bison alone. We have a lot of different species. So find the species, find the blend that you like. Um, Our, the way that we raise our animals, I'll say this too, the organs taste different. They're more mild. They're sweeter. They're not going to say that they, that they taste like candy. Um, But at the same time, they're much more mild and much more palatable than, a, um, a grain finished, more acidic diet animal. Um, it's not as, it's not as, as strong and, and, uh, pungent, I guess, yeah. of a flavor in those organs, just because it's a, it's a, a more balanced pH, more of a neutral pH versus an acidic environment. So there's, yeah. you know, flavor profiling difference there too. Well, Sean, I, I know you're a busy man, so I, I appreciate your time. I'll let you get back to work, man. Um, how can people follow you oh, on, appreciate it. on yeah. social media and, and, and what's the website? Yeah, NorthstarBison.com. Um, find us there. We've got a lot of good resources on there as well as our web store. And then our Instagram handle is just at NorthstarBison. So that's kind of the two best places you know, that we're most active. But, yeah, shoot us an email. Give us a call. Um, yeah, message us on Instagram, whatever you can just reach out we're we're highly engaged awesome well i appreciate your time dude and i'll let you know i'll I'll tag y'all i'll try not to spam y'all too much when this uh when this comes out it'll be a couple weeks but uh also dude i I, I, uh you know we're 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 still working on the documentary we're we're planning um it'll probably be sometime next year when we make it up north but we just did a couple more uh, stops here in texas so we're done with our well i say we're done we're done with our interview um, portions in, in Texas. So we got, uh, we had like four or five stops. Um, okay. so we need to make our way out to California, out to your area and, and, and some more spots yeah. up, up North. So yep. that's the plan. Dude. Cool. Yeah. I'm excited to hear more about that too. And what you got going on there. That's, that's interesting. I think one, the one, uh, there's so much to be said and so much to be learned in this regenerative space like it's it's so fascinating and there's there's so much that we're learning and we're i mean this is our profession we spend all day and night you know thinking and 
living and breathing this stuff and it's just blowing our minds and so there's so much out there for consumers to to dive into and and really uh learn about and it's it's cool so what you're doing is is huge i I just say that like the more the more educational aspect that we can bring and the more um spotlight we can put on regenerative as a whole in this community that's growing and uh and serving more people all the time you know a growing consumer base yeah um is is awesome i mean i just yeah i just uh i'm so excited to to hear that you're and doing this project and uh it's going to be and thank you for connecting me with so uh with dr van vlake is it how do you pronounce yeah. his name van vlake dr yeah van, van vliet. vliet yeah vliet van okay. vliet yeah okay That's how I said it. yeah i'm meeting with yeah, him he's, on he's a, uh, a dutchman on Thursday, next Thursday. So awesome. I appreciate awesome. it. Yeah. I, I've been reading that his guy work has a wealth for, of knowledge. Yeah, dude. I've been, I've been reading his work for like a long, I say a long time, like the last 12 months, I guess, since I've started down this rabbit hole and there's so much to learn, dude. Every time I uncover like a, a new rock, there's th- like, I, I get overwhelmed with it sometimes. Like I don't, yeah. the, the lack of knowledge that I have in it in the space, but it, it's fun to continue learning about it though. So, yeah. Yeah, it is. And even, yeah, even like I said, for us, you know, that are professionals in this space, it, it gets overwhelming at times because it's so, so huge and yeah. so impactful. It's crazy, yeah. crazy, crazy. It's exciting. It really is. And we're just hit, we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg. I feel like too, on, on the knowledge of why, you know, why, why does nature, why is nature designed the way that it is? Yeah. And why does it function the way that it does? And I think one thing that really blows my mind too, I'll say this, like I was just watching a documentary here this winter, like a BBC documentary or something like that. And it was talking about some global weather patterns and some of the stuff that they're learning. And, and they, so most of the Amazon um, is fertilized by windstorms in Africa. So mm-hmm. all this, all this particulate that gets, that gets stirred up in the desert gets, basically sucked up into the clouds travels all the way across the ocean and then accumulates <laughs> and falls out of the clouds in, in the amazon and that's where most of the fertilization comes from and so if there's there's transcontinental fertilization going on what's going on on you know all these uh these soil subsystems essentially you know mm-hmm. that are that are going um that are you know, in the in the prairie and the, the communication between even the Midwest and the West of the, the just our little continent here, the East Coast, the West Coast, and and mm-hmm. what's going on in those ecosystems and how they're communicating and correlating to each other, and we see things as wasteland and you know put in a landfill. Meanwhile, that was you know those nutrients were feeding another vital uh, ecosystem that seemed disconnected. That was and so just the unintended consequences of things that we that we do on a daily basis yeah. uh, and the decisions that we make that we, we would make judgments on things that we feel are, are wasted or, or not fully utilized. And it's just amazing for me to, to think that, man, what if we just sat back and learned a little bit more about what's going on here and ask the question of why I know it has a purpose, but I don't understand it yet. What can I do to, to learn about why this is the way that it is? And yeah. anyway, it's it's crazy. It's no, crazy fun stuff. No, it's 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 that's why I continue to do this podcast, man. I, you know, I, I I just talked to this um this guy. Uh, I forget what group he's from, but 
it's the pollinators of America or something like that. And he was talking about oh, yeah. mm-hmm. how many uh, different species of pollinators are have been impacted through the use of neonicotinoids. Um, okay. And he was, he was given some crazy facts, like a, like a one one square foot treated lawn can kill like five hundred thousand bees or something like that with with these with these chemicals. And it's just like stuff that Whoa. stuff that I keep learning about that just makes it kind of scary, but but also uh, mm-hmm. it's fun to share the information from the experts like yourself. Um, it's it's kind of become a passion. So yeah, well, I mean, just first time experience here too to go right along with that. We live on a lake right now, and um, the lake we had a kind of a dry spring a little bit, and you know everybody's treating their lawns and doing all stuff you know all summer long for weeds and and uh, fertilizer and all this and um and so then it rained in started raining like in the middle of july and as soon as it rained um the lake went instantly green and it was just yeah. essentially it was just all this garbage that washed in off everybody's lawn and, yeah. and off their, uh, all the cornfields you know that was just kind of accumulated from six weeks of of dry spell and so it was just sitting there and uh it rained and rinsed off and went in the, in the water and it just exploded uh algae bloom and and i mean you could see the bottom of the lake off the end of the dock like i mean it's six eight feet deep and no problem and literally the next almost it was almost a day you know i mean it was just like overnight um mm. within four or five days i guess of the of that rain you just walked down there and it was just like what happened to this lake it's just like a it's like sludge, yeah. you know, and what, a, you know, well, that was just one little example here. And we don't have near the, the population that a lot of other places around the country that were just perched right on our, on our water systems and, and just all the, the garbage that runs off of lawns and, and farm fields that are treated with a lot of this stuff. We don't think about those impacts and what it's doing to, you know, our water systems. Yeah. He, he was saying golf courses, the communities around golf courses are oh, yeah. some of the most toxic. Like if there's bodies yeah. of water around those communities, those are often yeah. the most toxic bodies of water because of all the chemicals mm-hmm. that get used on golf courses, which is wild. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. That needs to be a revolution because that stuff is, is uh, suppressing nature. And I think one thing that's, that's really exciting to me is how resilient our bodies are and how resilient nature is. And yeah. despite the oppression and despite all the mistakes that we make, yeah and how well it thrives and purifies and detoxes itself uh, whether it's our liver or our organs you know that are de- detoxing and it's just it's really remarkable i think from that standpoint too how resilient well sean i i appreciate your time man i'm gonna check yeah, out man. the website and then I'll, I'll let you know when this comes out i'll shoot you the link through uh through, through ig or or email and, and we'll yeah. stay in touch man i, I really want to make it out there and, yeah. and get some footage of y'all so. yeah we'd love to have you for sure all right man you have a good one man have a good weekend. Thanks. All right, you buddy. too. Bye. Thanks, man. See ya.